You're listening to the Writers Forum. I'm your host, Mike Tusa, and today I'll be speaking with author Elizabeth Winthrop Alsop about her new book, Daughter of Spies, Wartime Secrets, Family Lies. Ms. Alsop is the author of over 60 works of fiction, including the novels Island Justice and In My Mother's House. She's also written fantasy novels for children. Welcome to the show, Elizabeth. Thank you for having me, Michael. I'm looking forward to it. Good. Well, you know, this is a memoir of sorts. Whenever someone writes a memoir, I, there's always a question in my mind about why or why now. You, you really answer that in the book, but for our listeners, tell us a little bit about why you decided to write the, the memoir. Okay. After, you know, years and years of writing fiction and choosing to use my name, Elizabeth Winthrop, as the writing name, um, because my father was a famous journalist, Stuart Alsop, and I didn't want to hang on his coattails. Um, I finally began to look at my mother's story. My father and uncle wrote a very famous syndicated column for the Herald Tribune syndicate that hit 28 million readers. My mother was a sort of classic 1950s quiet helpmeet wife. Uh, she, in fact, is British. She worked for the uh, British Intelligence Service, MI5, and my father jumped behind enemy lines into France. So that's why the title is Daughter of Spies. And I finally thought, my mother's been a footnote to this story. We need to tell her story. And that's why I switched from fiction to memoir and Ah. started this book. Okay. Well, you know, whenever someone writes a memoir, another question that sometimes comes up, especially when they're writing about others, is how honest to be. Uh, Did you Mm -hmm. struggle at all with that? I did struggle with it because there are, uh, I have a, I have a um, uncle who said every time Elizabeth writes a book, it's like dodging a bullet. (laughs) And it was really a reference to the fact that I often put characters in my novels that were recognizable. Mm -hmm. So I struggled with, I did not want to write this book and let the cat, as we say, half out of the bag. I really wanted to be honest. And that meant I had to confront my own childhood, my mother's alcoholism, my father's distance, But in the end, I learned a great deal, particularly about my mother and who she was and how brave she was. So although I struggled, I stuck to it. And I think it's important to turn the spotlight as sharply on yourself as you do on anybody else in the book. And I believe I did that. I think you did very well. You know, I was going to actually ask this probably at the end of the interview, but in light of what you just said, I'm going to go ahead and throw it in now. I've taught a couple of memoir writing classes, and one of the things that almost universally comes up from older students that are writing is how much they learned that they thought they already knew about situations that happened in their life. And it sounds like that's part of what happened for you. Very much, very much. Good question. I um, I was shocked in writing the memoir how it triggered my childhood emotions of being with an alcoholic. So the memoir is a braided narrative, and it talks about taking care of my mother as she slides into dementia. And what shocked me was that when it came to really reliving those years, the years of her dementia, I realized how her sharpness or her vagueness or her distance 
triggered my own childhood emotions about being abandoned by her because she was an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. And I was shocked by that, how strongly that emotion came up. I thought I had dealt with it and put it behind me, but it was right back there. So I learned as much about myself in writing this as anybody else. All right, well, let's jump into the story a little bit. So uh, you've already alluded to the fact that both of your parents were involved in the war effort, World War II effort. How did you go about, and you talk about this in the book, but for our listeners, how did you go about pulling all the information together that you needed on what was really secret lives of your parents during the war? Yes. Well, the first is that my father... um, has written, he wrote a memoir about dying. He died very early of cancer at the age of 60, leukemia. Um, So I had that memoir, but I knew that he kept a lot out of that one. I read a lot about his wartime service. In fact, I met the man who jumped into France with him in 1944, um, and he told me things that I didn't know. But in terms of my mother... She she was a pack rat. She kept everything in the basement. And so I was bringing up all sorts of documents to her and reading them aloud to her, which was a wonderful interaction between the two of us when she had dementia, because it could bring her back. It She would tell me a story. So I did that. I videotaped her. She talked before she had serious dementia. I taped her on her childhood in Gibraltar and her experiences in the war in London. So putting all that together, the documents, my father's letters from the war, his memories, her memories, it took a long time, but I formed a much more complete picture of who they were and what they went through. Well, you know, this is somewhat unique, but you you also, and it comes through in the book, you, you had a unique opportunity to learn about who your parents were before you were born. Isn't that true? It is true, and I, ironically, I originally I thought I would write this as a novel and as a sort of World War II love affair, but I didn't know, and I mean, I didn't want to invent that much about them. I really wanted to know who they were, and that's what flipped me over to considering a memoir for the first time in my life. I'd never written nonfiction. Um, and it, I think in a way I got deeper into it because I put myself right into the story in the beginning of the book. I, of course, as everybody knows, wasn't there when they were having their love affair and they were meeting in England and so on. And that meant if I just wrote that, it felt pretty flat on the page. But when I braided that narrative with taking care of my mother at the same time, I was very present in the story even though I hadn't been there, obviously, when they met. But it, I think, made it more immediate. It, it, it works really well. But let me ask a, an odd question, um, although I think it's probably one kids have often thought about, even as older adults, about their parents. What is it that you think attracted your parents to each other? <laughs> well, my father was 28, yeah. and my mother was six when they met and they sat next to each other at a dinner party in Yorkshire, England. My father could not get into the American army because he had high blood pressure and asthma. So he enlisted in the British army and went over in April of 42, a lot earlier than many American soldiers. So he was invited to this dinner party and they sat next to each other. And my mother looked at him and said, you look like a criminal. 
because he'd had his head <laughs> shaved because he was in the military, and she didn't say another word. Now, part of the reason was she was hungry. I mean, she'd been living on rations. There, She was concentrating on getting as much food in her as possible because it was big spread, and Daddy loved it. He wrote home to his parents that she did not babble and chatter like Long Island women in at debutante parties. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you, my mother was not a chatterer. And I think it's what originally attracted her. I think they fell in love very soon. And I have to say that my mother looked at England during all the bombings that she went through, and she thought, this country is going to take a long time to recover from this, from the dust and the bombs. My parents lost my brother, my, her only son, was killed in the war, and I think she wanted to get out. She wanted yeah. so much to start a life in a country that hadn't been so terribly damaged by the yeah. war. But this is a wonderful introduction to, to the book, which is a great book. But let me ask you if I can get you to, and you just pick some section, to get you to read a little bit of the book so folks will have a flavor of the writing. Okay, I'd be happy to. I've picked something that gives a flavor of what my parents were doing in the 1950s and how we children reacted. Okay. I have five brothers. Mm. I am the third child. My oldest brother, Joe, really figures in this section. All right. I grew up in a family of spies. My father worked for the Office of Strategic Services, my mother, mother for the British Intelligence Service. Since they were forbidden to talk about their wartime activities, they kept secrets from one another. From the day they met, it became a habit that morphed from the political to the personal. By the early 1950s, my parents, affectionately known as Stu and Tish, lived at the center of glamorous post-war Washington, D.C., part of what was known as the Georgetown set. This referred to the people who began after the war to buy up housing in the oldest section of Washington. Ambassadors and diplomats and members of the cabinet came to our house for dinner. My parents' closest friends either ran most of the CIA's covert operations during the 1950s and 60s or worked in the State Department helping to cover the spies' tracks. Or, like my father and uncle, worked as journalists who were often debriefed by the CIA when they returned from abroad. The Second World War united these people. Many of them had served, like Daddy, with the OSS. They all had what my father called good wars. Nobody was wounded, and they came home bursting with pride at what they'd achieved. They were patriotic and devoutly anti-communist. Not long after they returned to their pre-war jobs as lawyers or editors or administrators, they got restless. And one by one, they gravitated to Washington, where the talk was always political, be it over a candlelit meal or a tennis net. Information was exchanged, sources were consulted, secrets were divulged. My brother Joe was our natural leader, not just because he was the oldest, but because he was a mathematical genius who came up with the kind of anti-grown-up schemes that occupied our time and gave us a sense of triumph over the opposing forces. 
He was the one who bet my father $50 that he could bug the dining room during a dinner party without being detected. My brother Ian and I helped him run wire under the rug and handed him the small microphone when he was ready to attach it to the leg of the table by my father's chair. The next evening, in that slice of time between Daddy's tennis game and my parents' dinner, Joe carried the heavy wall-and-sack reel-to-reel tape recorder into the living room. He set it up on the rickety table next to Daddy's special chair while Ian and I gathered around. Daddy looked up from his book. What's this, he asked. By way of an answer, Joe pressed the play button, and the room was filled with the buzz of a Washington dinner party. We had not managed to get any state secrets on tape. To be honest, it was hard to hear what people were saying over the clink of silverware against the china plates, but you could pick out familiar voices and an occasional phrase. (laughs) Daddy shook his head in disbelief, dug the silver money clip out of the pocket of his dinner jacket, and peeled off five $10 bills. Joe took them without a word. <laughs> well, right, you mentioned these Washington uh, get-togethers, these formal occasions at your house and otherwise. And in the book, you, you deal with the fact that your mother had an alcohol problem. And I wonder, mm-hmm. and you actually, I think at some point, I, I, I see you said, quote, that the alcohol made all those formal Washington occasions much easier, close quote, for her. Do you, mm-hmm. do you think that she had some type of social anxiety? Yes, definitely. She was, in the old days, we called it shy. She was a very shy person, extremely efficient, very good in a crisis, which is part of what attracted Daddy to her, because he was a bit of a mess in the kitchen sink. He was always <laughs> losing things and dropping things, and you know his clothes didn't look very respectable and had to be sewn. She took care of all of that. But in terms of one-to-one or in a big party, she was very nervous. Mm-hmm. She was she, to give you an example, she came across the North Atlantic, pregnant with my brother Joe, in convoy, um, in December of 44. And when she arrived in America, my father had crossed much more quickly in the Queen Mary. And within two months, they were living in Washington. My father had decided to go into business with his, um, his older brother, my uncle, writing this column. So they had to go out to dinner with very important people. Within two months, the first person that my mother sat next to at a dinner party was Felix Frankfurter, the Supreme Court Justice. Can you imagine? She was an 18-year-old, a shy English girl who had been to boarding school, never went to university because she had to do war work. And she is supposed to sit there and talk to the Supreme Court Justice about the current situation. So you can imagine why she turned to the alcohol yeah. to calm her down. You know, and you also make mention in the book, and you referred to this earlier about as you relived it, in your childhood, uh, the alcoholism was the elephant in the room. I think that's the phrase that you use. Yeah. And you talk about, I think this was interesting, how you and your siblings dealt with that, almost with code on occasion, right? Yes. Yeah, we, um, the house was big. I have five brothers, and we also had live-in people taking care of us. So there were 11 bedrooms in the house in, that, in those years. It was huge. 
in Washington. My brother would would get home earlier from school. My brother Ian, who was a year older than I, I would come in the back door in the kitchen, and he would either put a thumb up or a thumb down. And it was his way of saying, uh-oh, scatter. You know, right. take cover. She's rampaging around or she's locked in her bedroom or whatever it was. And a thumb, you know, that was a thumb down. A thumb up meant, okay, it's pretty safe to be in the house. You know, she seems to be in a good mood. So it was like walking through a minefield. And mm-hmm. I think this is true of most children of alcoholics. You never know where to put your foot. You never know what will set her off. But we had this wonderful office, we called it in the basement, that my brother Joe, that's where he, you know, figured out the wiring to bug the headmaster's study. He had a chemical set. We blew things up down there. We just went down there and hid in the basement. And Joe became our kind of downstairs father. Because my father was often away traveling to report. And there was my mother, sad and unhappy and often under the influence. Yeah. You mentioned towards the end of the book that um, when she was battling uh, dementia, that that you had a chance to talk to her about her alcoholism, and you referred to it as like walking through a minefield. How did she respond to that? That was interesting. We had a very tough conversation about a novel I wrote called Knock Knock Who's There?, which was about two boys who father, whose father dies of leukemia or a blood disease. And after he died, they discover their mother's an alcoholic. So that was extremely close to home. Um, and we, she flew up to New York, and we sat down, and we had some very honest talks about what her life had been like, what it was like for me. And we came to a closure of sorts. It took a while. But there were a good 30 years in there when my mother was sober and I was, she was supporting me and I had children and she loved my children, etc. Then she headed back into dementia. And that's when I thought this is almost felt like another elephant in the living room because she couldn't track conversations. But we did have, there was a moment in that dementia a year before she died where she said, what was it like when I was drunk? And she had never asked that question before. And I was tempted to be, oh, it was okay, Mommy, but I didn't. I was very honest. And I said, I never knew what to expect. I never knew when you would blow up. And she began to cry hearing mm-hmm. about it. And it was her way of saying, I'm sorry, yeah. and regretting all those years lost. Yeah. Now, as to your father, you mentioned this already, he died relatively young of, of leukemia, as I recall. But from what I read, and you've alluded to this, he, he seems to have been mostly disengaged with the family. Is that right? Yeah, correct. And, and how, as a child, he, uh, go ahead. I, no, I was going to say, as that, a child, how did was, you do that? That was hard. You know, I mean, now I'm a writer, and right. I used to say, the boys say there was never a sign on the door, but there was an emotional sign on the door that I like to call, please don't knock unless you're bleeding, mm-hmm. which was his way of saying, I am engaged in very serious work in the house. You guys have to be quiet. Don't bother me. Don't interrupt me when I'm interviewing someone in the living room. Don't interrupt me on the phone. So even when he was physically present, he was emotionally absent. Hmm. And he traveled a great deal in addition. So 
I know he loved me, um, but it was never expressed. My, yeah. my mother was, you know, British and keep calm and carry on. And my father was somewhat of that ilk also. He, too, was quite a shy man, and he had to put himself out there to ask tough questions and meet a lot of different people. And so I think all the energy to engage went there and not with his children. You know, I couldn't help thinking this as I read it, um, and it's not a it's not a judgment, but do you think your parents were just living separate lives, even though they were married? I don't think it was quite that distant. Okay. They, you know, it, it wasn't, it was more that mummy carried the home, the hearth. You know, mummy decided when we had to go to the dentist and all of the kind of things that 1950s mothers did with their children. They divided their jobs the way many couples did in those days. Um, and But I wouldn't say they lived entirely separate lives. She was very crucial to his entertaining. They cook, they, I mean, she was a brilliant cook. Mm -hmm. And they gave dinner parties once or twice a week or went to them. And they were always partners in that. Okay. So... They weren't that separate. They just were disengaged from us. I got you. Well, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, that's it. All right. Well, through much of the book, except when you're narrating prior history, your mother is dealing with the ravages of dementia, which I think many people can understand and, and appreciate. As our parents age and their health deteriorates, we, we sometimes become the parent in the relationship. Is that the dynamic that developed between you and your mother? Yeah, the, the whole dementia question, I, I, it's an interesting thing to me how many people have related to that in reading this book. You know, I thought, oh, they would care about World War II or the love affair of Cold War Washington, which, you know, I get a lot of comments about that. But the hardest thing is to, to live or to take care of a person with dementia and try to live in their world. So... That means even though she brought up the cardinal at the bird, the cardinal at the bird feeder three times in an hour, I tried to be in the present moment with her. But one of the best ways that I could bring her back to me was to get some of those documents out of the basement. I would read her the letters that my father wrote to his parents about what an amazing woman she was. That would just bring a smile to her face, and she'd say, well, of course, I never read those. Hmm. Or I would get her to read the commission from the Queen of England for my great-uncle to become a lieutenant. And although she complained she couldn't really read because something was wrong with her eyes, it was actually that she couldn't remember the beginning of a sentence when she got to the end of it. But when I put those documents in front of her, she was very much there and could read them. So it almost gave me a, a you know, investigating her history and researching it gave me a way back to her. Yeah. That was wonderful. Well, you know, you know this as a writer, you know, universal themes resonate with folks. And I suspect that's probably why uh, the relationship with your mother and the dementia and all that uh, resonates with so many others. I think you're right. Think but, you know, right. I, I tell you something that struck me, and, and, and as somebody that's had to deal with a relative that had dementia, when I read the parts about you reading the letters to her in particular, 
Uh-huh. Um, I thought, you know what? You brought her some joy in the midst of what yeah. undoubtedly had to be, for somebody like her especially, a very confusing and, and difficult time to understand. Yes. The doctor once said to me, it's as if your mother wakes up every day in the middle of a movie. Ah. And I never forgot that phrase. But yes, I think we did bring her joy. And having, I videotaped her when she was fine. And all through the years of dementia, I would bring those tapes out and show them to her. And in the early years, she knew who she was. She knew what she was saying. She would add details. Oh, I wore a black dress the night the V1s hit Green Park and your father and I were on our honeymoon in the Ritz. You know, just the slightest memory would trigger a new detail. Uh, The most favorite one I had was when I showed her the photograph of herself at the coronation of King George VI in 1937 in Gibraltar. And I said, Mommy, why are you all dressed up and why are there bows on the dogs? You know, they had bows tied around their necks. And she, without skipping a beat, said, Hark the herald angels sing. Mrs. Simpson stole our king. Ah. And it was all about oh, the my abdication of Edward. Yeah. And it just just came out of her, like, uh-huh. out of the ether. Wow. Um, so that was, I think, I would love to say to anybody who is got a parent or a, a person they're taking care of, try to get their memories and their stories, even when they're in dementia. Yeah. Things will come back. Well, unfortunately, so, yeah, this is all the time we have for today. Um, and you've been listening to the Writers' Forum, and I've been speaking with author Elizabeth Winthrop Alsop about her new book, Daughters of Spies, Wartime Secrets, Family Lies. Uh, Elizabeth, is there a website or other social media sites that folks can go to to learn more about you and to learn more about the book? Absolutely. It's ElizabethWinthropAlsop.com or ElizabethWinthrop.com. And there's, there's a lot there. There are places to buy the book and so on. There's a terrific interview I just did with Tim Gunn okay. uh, at, at a local library. So lots of ways to find out more. Okay. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. I enjoyed the book. I encourage folks to go pick it up. Thank you, Michael.